to The Running Public with Bracken Crocker and Kirk DeWint. It's Tuesday, folks, and you know what that means. Training Tuesday. We are going to take every rabbit hole, follow tangents, use useless metaphors, get lost in the weeds. This is Training Tuesday. When you're ready to take your training or racing to the next level, go to therunningpublic.com. We have both monthly subscription training plans, $19.99 a month, and Bracken and I both offer one-on-one customized coaching. Again, go to therunningpublic.com and check out our offerings. Well, it was strange waking up without you this morning. It was? Yeah, we just had each other nonstop for, what, three and a half days? Yeah, about three and a half days. And you know how we, like you go on a retreat or you go to a camp or you go to a some more like symposium or something. Everything you're, everything's fired up. Everyone's riding high, and then you get back to real life and you settle in, and you're like, yeah, that's why this isn't sustainable because uh-huh. real life takes back over. I had like that little doldrum this morning when I woke up thinking it's back to real life, not fake life. Uh, fake man weekend life. You mean? Yeah. Yeah, we got a taste of what it would be like if we lived in the same town. It made me think how much we would get done if we lived next door to each other. That's exactly it. Like, you'd probably be president. I I would probably be secretary of the state. We probably have been to the moon and back by now. It's just like so much gets done when we're together. And distance, you know, makes it tough. We make it work. But man, were we productive this weekend. Yeah, the big thing that hit me is the turnaround time. It's it's obvious looking back, but there's no turnaround time when we're face-to-face. You have an idea? I think about it. I tell you my response. Boom, it's over. Mm-hmm. Or like a couple more back and forths rather than in between meetings or in between texts or whatever it's going to be. We were highly effective this weekend, and that was, that was invigorating. Uh-huh. For those of you who don't know, um, Bracken and I got together for um was it thursday through sunday and we did sort of like a running public intensive we were outside of devil's lake state park uh which is in what the southwestern portion of wisconsin we'll call it bluff country pretty cool the driftless region so we had access to some steep rock faces and big hills and then we got this cute little airbnb with a ladybug infestation uh and we got to work basically and so we're hoping right mm-hmm. as you're listening to this that you already notice maybe a subtle difference in either audio quality. Maybe the intro is a little different. I don't know if you noticed that. We got to work on like a lot of things, including like the sand in between the cracks, the big rocks and the boulders, sort of portions of the running public. Um, and know what else I notice already as we're shoring this up? Because now we're recording virtually for the first time. Do you notice any delay at all? No, we don't currently have a delay. It's perfect. We got a couple of comments about talking over each other and the delay. And I'm like, maybe maybe we just came at this thing from all angles, Bracken. We did. We spent a stupid amount of time working on some things that may or may not even like register at first, but they were very satisfying to work on. So what are your main takeaways? So basically, we, we got together. We talked the running public. We talked training. We got some great runs in as well. Um, while we were together, like, mm-hmm. what are some of your, some of your takeaways from the weekend? And then what, so for you listening, Bracken and I haven't spent any length of time together. We've spent a few training trips and things like that, but you'll get a hotel with the family. 
you stayed with me for my wedding weekend a bit back. So we, we rarely spend extended time in person together. And then everything we've done is virtually as far as like business and recording and everything. So this is the first time we like spent significant time together. And I have a few things I learned about you just from, from, uh, mm. living with you for three days. Uh, so I want to know what are your takeaways from the long weekend? And then what did you learn about me that you didn't already know or things that were just like, huh, worthy? Lisa watched this Netflix show and I watched a few with her and I forget what it's called, but the premise is that it's blind date. Love is blind. That's what it is. Love is uh -huh. blind. It's total yeah. blind dating. You ever see the preview for that? Preview. I've never watched. I don't watch smart reality TV, but because um, it's for losers. No, but I'm aware. But you can't see each other. And you spe you're like in isolation in these pods and you can't see each other. And at the end of it, you either go your separate way or you propose. And after you propose, then you meet each other in person. And then, you know, the real games begin. But this was kind of us. We had talked a while back that we we're somewhere between 12 and 16 times in person we've seen each other. Yeah. But we've been business partners for four years, over 400 episodes. And 12 to 16 times. So the fact that we spent three nights and four days together makes up somewhere between like 25 and 35% of our total time we've ever had together. Sure. So it was like an enormous amount of time compared to our past relationship. So I did learn things about you as well. Okay. Well, what do you... <laughs> a deeper level. Yeah. Let, let's start. Um, let's start with takeaways. Any takeaways as far as um, your own fitness, uh podcast stuff, listener stuff, anything that they should know or any personal takeaways. Cause I had a couple as well on both fronts. This new, like, it's like, who's Bracken got to learn that. And mm -hmm. then, uh, and then ideas for the podcast. So the, there's both ends coming for me. So go ahead. So I'm going to start with the, the professional side. This, this trip was all about take this from something we started as a hobby and a pastime and start treating it like a business rather than a side hustle. And so that's what, that was the premise of the weekend. How do we go from dabbling in this to treat it with the respect it and you deserve in a way that we can retain our passion, love, and joy for what we're doing and talking about and make this a lifelong thing rather than, uh, this is fun. Let's see where it goes type thing. So that, that I, I would say that was a huge success this weekend and it was my big takeaways were that we left with an action list of of items that make me feel confident that we can do both. We can move forward as a business rather than a small little passion project, but keep it feeling like a passion project, but with parameters. Yeah, that's very well said. That's how I feel about it as well. I think we've gotten, uh, we've gotten by for four years under the passion project circumstance. Cause when this started, we had no real intent other than to fill a, a need. We felt like there was a big space in OCR specifically at the time for knowledge. Nobody was teaching anybody anything on a consistent basis. You had Matt B. Davis with ORM doing a great job of keeping people in the know. And then from there, there were a few athlete interview podcasts. There was no actionable teaching knowledge. So this started with like, we didn't know it was going to grow our coaching business. We didn't have a, an actual plan to come out with like monthly training subscriptions. None of it. We just thought, People need to help. And that's where it started. So we had no idea it would turn into a business. So it was finally time right. for us to sit down together and be like, all right, it's been fun. Let's keep it that way. But maybe we should <laughs> maybe we should invest a little more into it. So I agree with you. But the origin yeah. 
was was how it started was purely just because we felt like people needed to be taught. Yeah. Yeah, we had we had lucked into, stumbled into, and then intentionally gathered a lot of general and some specific running knowledge just for having been in the sport for a long time. And where we came into the sport of OCR, most people didn't have that background. And so it was just like, there's a vacuum. Let's just transfer info from one side to the other. It'll help everyone out. And now we don't want to do anything but that. Uh, But flipping to the other side, what I learned about you, Kirk, is that we are not wired the same like at our core central nervous system. Okay. I like nothing more than to accomplish work and then relax until the next bout of work needs to be done. And you, I learned, have to immediately pivot to the next thing at all times of the day. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. you feel stir crazy. We are not in alignment on that. Well, my wife would agree with you that I'm very bad at relaxing and I need to always work towards the next thing. Mm -hmm. Um. But the interesting thing was is that you were the cotter pin, which means you held everything together. Like a lot of the things that we wanted to get done relied on your skill set. So you were sort of forced. Like it was like, we're going to just work, and you rolled with it right away. But I do remember the first day mm-hmm. we'd, we'd went out uh, and we got a track workout in, which went really well. And sort of some girls' conditions outside, actually. We'd been sort of babied with this nice weather, and then we got like a cold, windy day on the track that was exposed. But it went well. Anyways, we came back, and then it was like, well, High Rocks is on. We need to watch High Rocks because, of course. And then pretty soon it's like 2 p.m., and we had hardly done anything. And I was sitting on the couch with you, and I was like, this is really uncomfortable for me (laughs) to sit here and just watch this and not get to work. Yeah. He said something along the lines of, I'm enjoying watching this, but I'm starting to go crazy. I've I've sat for way too long. Anything else you learned about me? Then I'll tell you what I learned about you. I learned your morning routine, which sounds simple or like unimportant, mm-hmm. but you were pretty, it was, you were very straightforward throughout the weekend about how your day is entirely dictated by what you get done in like your first three hours. And yeah. the first three hours of my day are <laughs> kind of like picking my way through the clutter of life until kids are all off to school and then my day begins. And so when we arrive at recording together at 10.30 a.m. most days on Monday or most weeks on Monday, your day, like the meat and potatoes of your work as a coach, has already been accomplished and mine's rolling now. Mm, yeah. We're coming – we don't see – I think the statement we make was we didn't. we don't see the in-betweens of our lives. We see these checkpoints along the way, and we don't know what the other person does during the transitional period. And we could not be more different in the way our mornings look. Mm-hmm. And you spend way more time working late, later in the evening or such, and I don't touch it then. Mm-hmm. So we just we have shifted hours. And I don't have kids. Of course, I don't have to get three kids out the door to school and ready so I can roll out. I'm on my computer by six usually most mornings and get to work, whereas you've got other things going. But um, I learned a few things about you. Okay. So one, I learned that you are in better shape than you give yourself credit for. Statement number one. Thank you. Bracken and I, Bracken and I did a track workout on Friday, and it went very well um, for you. And the fluidity of it, we did a track workout, uh, two-mile buy-in, 12-by-a-quarter-mile, two-mile cash-out. Um, you didn't do the last cash-out because you chose to sell your soul on the last quarter, which was impressive. But your fitness is good. False. It's a good. Your fitness is good. You ran impressively. Thank you. 
Uh, I had written out the buyout by the time we were to like rep nine or 10. I realized if I finish all 12 quarters, my buyout effectiveness is essentially done. So I'll just cash out on the last quarter. Mm -hmm. So it looked like I did it instead. In reality, it wasn't there. So I did my own version of a buyout, but it felt good to run fast. Well, either way, if the listeners need perspective, uh, Bracken is is in or coming into shape. And I think that um, whatever you choose to hit next or first, I think you have a legit shot of being happy with your performance and being back to the old Bracken. And I know you're not even trying to sharpen the pointy end of your spear yet, but I was impressed. Not that you need that that even needs to be said, but I think that the listeners often don't understand the fitness you're building. And I think you you bite your tongue in regards to your fitness because why wouldn't you right now as you're building back over the years from surgeries? And so, um, mm-hmm. I mean, you were able to chat for two hours straight on a long run, nonstop, and still run very effective. I mean, that's talent right there. I'm just saying. Well, I appreciate you recognizing the work uh, because I do certainly underplay what I'm doing, but it's become like my, uh, almost like the armor I put on because whenever I start to feel good and I start to prep for something, my last five years, I get hurt or I lay an egg. And so it's, I've talked about this on here repeatedly, but I will just continually sell myself short out loud. So that people no longer have to hear me say, oh, guess what I'm about to do? And then it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So my only intent is to keep building and building and building and finally do whatever the thing is uh, and have it be like this great, relaxed, joyous occasion for me with no pressure uh, because I've just been beat up too many times by my own body. So I just keep saying, ah, there's not a lot of fitness there because that keeps me from jumping into something stupid. Yeah. Well, it's self-preservation too. And I don't blame you for that either. Yeah. But it has to switch at some point to bring some cockiness back if you want to be a good racer. Yeah. Everybody likes a little swagger. Yeah. The other two things. I learned a lot. I could, I learned like literally I could probably list off 15 things. Uh, number two, you really like chapstick. You are a chapstick lover. Oh. That chapstick, if it's on your pocket, he will. I would say that's false too. He will go back. Into the house to get that chapstick. Like, we went out to the car, and he's like, I'm forgetting my chapstick. He had to run back in so those lips could be lubricated. I don't know if you were throwing me subliminal messages or not, but chapstick is, you know, is kind of, you know, it's part of your routine right now. Chapstick. Burt's Bees, specifically. It Again, you caught a weird snapshot of me. In my 36 years on Earth, this winter is the driest my lips have ever been. I got rocked. I did a... I think I, we talked about it. I did like five by 1200 or seven by thousand. And it was like negative five out or something like that. And my skin got rocked that day and my lips have never like fully gotten back above water. So I just have to constantly have, and when I'm at home, I'll use Vaseline or lanolin and then I'm good. I can put that on and be good for hours at a time, but I didn't bring any of that. I just brought Burt's Bees, which just doesn't cut it from like a, a medicated standpoint mm. so yeah I, I probably reapplied a thousand times while we were together that's what it felt like it was obnoxious but i don't like chapstick you were trying to just draw me into your lips i think i think there were these subtle cues all weekend bracken comes oh, yeah. downstairs in his underwear waking up in the morning like you could have put clothes on but you didn't like see i am i'm on to you bracken nope 
I, my hack for the dry lips is grow facial hair. If you grow a beard or a mustache, uh, the oils in that keep your lips very well moisturized. I learned that because when I shave, then my lips get dry. And I think most people with beards, I mean, women, you're kind of screwed unless you're a special sort of women, I guess, I guess, but it's a, it's a, it's a chap lip hack. People need to know these things. So my question then is, do you have to just keep putting your lips up into your oily facial hair to get it? Or does it just kind of seep down and cover you grossly? I don't know how it works. I'm not sure how that works specifically, but I do absolutely know that when I shave clean, lips get dry. Um, I don't know. Seeping down grossly isn't a nice image. Uh, the last thing I learned about you is that nope. this guy works very hard on the editing side of things. He is a wizard with his little pencil. He's this little white MacBook tappy pencil thing. <laughs> and he moves that around like a magic wand, do to do cutting and pasting, whipping things around, opening files, closing things. Woo, woo, woo. I did, I don't know, four hours of watching Brack and move his little white pen, flick it, flittling it around, moving stuff dissecting it and i just earned some respect for the craft i know we're not experts but like it just painted a picture like bracken had said normally instead of me just breathing over your shoulder making suggestions which is what happened you'd be like yeah i have ayla on one arm and mira on the other and i have my headphones in and i'm editing this thing with two children around me i'm gonna just i just get the image now so like there's more respect for especially that side of things like that screen stuff like i don't enjoy it that much and just know you do that and i was just like it, it pretty you should see this guy with this pen folks it's unbelievable those are my those are the takeaways i want to talk about you were oddly like captivated by the apple pen well i was making like six inch skinny white references <laughs> a lot i thought it was funny yeah <laughs> i overdid those a little but i have these nimble little fingers Kirk. Uh-huh. all right anything else we need to recap uh, I don't want to, I guess, give away too much because a lot of our action items are a work in progress, but you'll notice that we have a commitment to better audio and uh, consistency across the board. Episode release times and dates, uniform every week, week in, week out, more clarity on topics, more precision with what we're discussing, more consistency and intentionality on social media. Uh, so... What that means is that things are going to shift slightly, hopefully only for the better, but it might require feedback. It might be one of those things that, hey, I'm only saying this because you guys are intentional about your audio. I'm noticing blank. Send us those things because I, when I uh, edit this, I use monitoring headphones. And when Kirk listens to it, he listens in the car on Bluetooth speaker. And our experience this weekend was night and day, me realizing how he consumes it versus how I hear it in my ears. And the flaws that exist in the files exist differently between how you consume the media. And that was something that probably we should have addressed from week one, but it was an unknown for us. We didn't know that was a thing. Mm-hmm. And But you guys all consume it in many different ways. So if you're noticing something that I'm clearly not, like, we would appreciate if you give us feedback on that because our intent is to clean up this audio as much as we possibly can with our skill set yeah we won't be perfect of course there's growing pains with everything but progress and then the one call to action then we'll get into some uh some real conversation here not about our love fest of a weekend but uh we potentially need help with the website potentially or at least input Um, if there's anybody listening that would consider themselves even a pseudo or semi-expert, especially on the back end SEO 
functionality, that sort of thing. Um, we may need to hire out, but we would really like to keep it internal to our listeners. If there's anybody who believes they have that skill set and could be of help, um, whether it's money, trade, suggestions, consult, we don't know. We just uh, we really need to build that out a little more effectively. And so we're going to give a crack at it here in the next week or two because we need to add some functions to it. But I figured it'd be better to ask the listener than go randomly search if, you know, for help potentially. We don't even know if we, we what kind of help we want. Just just putting the feelers out there. Exactly. Okay. We need a more professional site. We're going to do what we can do until the moment we can't. And when we can't, we have to get outside help anyway. It might as well be one of you. Yep. So if that's an interest for you, uh, if we're going to end up spending no matter what, let's keep it in-house. Yeah. All right. Let's pivot. Let's talk about the Milrose games. What happened this weekend? Uh, there's a lot that happened in the running world this weekend. You had High Rocks, um, which uh, we we aren't necessarily a recap show, and that's not going to be our intent moving forward. But Bracken and I both pay attention to what happens in the running world, and we want to do a better job of sharing that with you guys, and we find it fascinating. So obviously the headline news from the weekend before the Milrose Games is Kiptum, the world record holder in the marathon, passed away this last week, which he was destined to be and then surpass the great Eliud Kipchoge. Uh, it's hard to wrap your mind around it, isn't it? Like I can't really process like that happening to somebody so untouchable. Yeah, he ran two marathons. Is that correct? I think just two. Yeah, two ran two hundred one and ran two flat. And everyone had kind of just written him down as the greatest, future greatest of all time, but not in the way that we talked about some of the other future greatest. It was assumed that it was set in stone. That he just had to do one or two more results and he was already the best marathoner of all time. Mm -hmm. And he was going to rewrite everything we ever thought possible. The same way Eliud Kipchoge did. But it was just assumed. People waited for so long for like Jakob to prove himself or Eliud to win one more, win another gold. And people were already ready to just say, Kelvin Kiptum is the best we've ever seen. And it's probably not close. And suddenly he's gone. I don't know if I can recall a time when an athlete was given their flowers before they actually got to that point because he was there without a body of work and people were just excited for the rest of the body of the work they just knew was coming. There's a big difference, I'm sure, for many reasons between Kiptum and Prefontaine, but it feels like Prefontaine never quite got his day, right? Like he he was sort of, of course, he went to the Olympics. He took mm -hmm. fourth Prefontaine. He was... Obviously an icon, but the belief was there was more in there for Pre, right? Like we hadn't seen his best yet. And Calvin Kiptum at 24 years old, far ahead of pace for where Eliud was when he started his marathon journey, a young marathoner by every account with so much potential and hope. And he had already set the world record at 23 years old. It's like he showed us. And then it was taken away to find out like a gift that we could all be given in the potential of humanity. And it's just kind of a bummer because there's no other runner right now where the actual sub two marathon is a legit potential anymore. And unfortunately, I think that's gone for Eliud as well in race competition. And I think now that's obviously the, the travesty is he's gone, but it's also sort of the spark is dampened for that feat alone. 
sub two in a sanctioned competition. I don't know who's going to step up and do that right now. So it's just like the bubble and the deflation from that, like optimism being gone just because he doesn't exist anymore. It's kind of is, is a bummer in itself. And then of course the travesty on its own. So I'm sure all of you listening probably have come across this already, but I figure we should talk about it. I would say that this news event is probably the most shared single piece of news running wise that I've had shared to me over the last in any 48 hour period of time, mm-hmm. uh, which I think speaks to the level of our local, not our local, like the, uh, the world we live in, you and I, in the podcast with the coaching, with the running community, the level of uh, just in-depth awareness people have grown to have about running. At the beginning, bigger, not bigger, but other large things like this have occurred that didn't get shared as much. I think that it just shows that I think post-COVID, people dove deeper into the world of running. And this is now mainstream news because of that. So it's obviously, it's it's tainted by the fact or bolstered by the fact that it's tragic. Those That news always hits home. But it, it also speaks to the level of engagement in the running community right now. Well, we have more access to these athletes than ever via social media and the way yeah. it works. So we actually get to know them and we're invested and then we care, right? And so, and even the two hour marathon has reached people who have never run a step in their life, right? Like even they can understand running two hours or sub two hours for 26 miles is unfathomable. And you get buy-in from people who never put on a pair of running shoes. And he was just sort of the next, the next in line. So anyways, wanted to just conversate Mm -hmm. about that for a moment. So apparently they were in a, they were driving, Calvin was, Kipton was driving in some sort of accident where his coach was in, in there as well. And they both passed, but, um, Moving on from that, the Milrose games. Did you pay attention this weekend? Yes, and Boston happened as well within the last week. Oh, yes, Boston. Two big competitions. And running is crazy right now. Just crazy. I feel like every weekend a record is broken. For the last year, every weekend a record is broken. For the last like three years, it seems, yeah. Not even a record. Multiple records are broken at every single meet. It's crazy. Again, I know half of our listeners pay attention to the running world. Half only want to pay attention to hybrid or OCR. And there's some of you trail bums out there too that probably just wait for that stuff. Because we also had Black Canyon this weekend uh, where our past guest Hans Troyer raced mm-hmm. his heart out, faded at the end. But nonetheless, uh, Milrose game. So what were the records that were set? Do you, can you rattle them off the top of your head? I know a handful. We had the world... The world uh, indoor, which would also be just the world 3K record, was set by Josh Kerr. Two-mile. Two-mile record. Two-mile, not 3K. Correct. Two-mile. Two-mile record was was set, broke Mo Farah's record. The American two-mile record was set. The indoor uh, mile world record was missed by two-tenths. Close. Four-tenths. But the American record was set. Uh, We had... What the women's American two mile record was set? Yeah, women's Alicia Monson set the women's American two mile record. Grant Fisher sent the American yeah yeah set the American two mile record. Josh Kerr broke the world two mile record. Then we had what Nikki Hiltz was she in the two mile? Just ran a really good time. I forget. I thought thought I saw something about her two mile two mile. There's just a lot of. I guess the two mile really stole the show. Now that we're thinking about it, huh? And and Josh Kerr and Four flat pace. Yeah. He ran eight flat for the two mile. And they went through above four. They negative split. Yeah. And Alicia Monson ran. 
They were 402, 403. Oh, she ran like 905 or something, 902, 905, like back to back 432 miles or something. It's unbelievable. So what do you credit to? Do you think it's everything? The track yeah. is better. The shoes are better. The training is better. Everything. Everything? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think people get really hung up on the shoes being better, like it's cheating. And there's some validity to that. But my response is that it's no different than the advancements in bikes for cyclists. Yeah. I guess there, it's marginal gains, but at the top, marginal gains are big. Uh, the track... To some extent, yes, but there was also way back in the day on the the wooden banked tracks, there was a spring to those, mm-hmm. how the wood actually bows in the panels and rebounds that you still don't get today. So the tracks are good, but not great, I would say. But the training combined with the shoes, I think really, really matters. And people get a little upset when you say the training's better. And I don't know if they fully are wrapping their mind around what that means. Doesn't mean anyone's smarter. Doesn't even necessarily mean people invented new ways to train. They're following better protocol for recovery and balancing training. No one's working harder than they used to. Some people are just working more intelligently in balancing things. And we've learned over the years what needs to be pushed on and what doesn't need to be pushed on. And I think the doesn't has caused as much improvement as the does. Mm. And I include with that racing frequency and training seasons of life rather than just like the X's and O's. But I think it all combined together has us in a place where craziness is happening. Mm -hmm. I would uh, feel like I know this sector of sport as well as most, not as well as you probably, but, you know, I think the pros are running. They're not running as hard as they used to in training. They are running hard workouts at a scaled back level, let's call it threshold level. They're not over speed training too soon. There's probably a bigger periodization. That's a trendy word for saying maybe holding back during certain times of the year so that they can peak when appropriate. I just think back to the simplicity of these sessions that you would read about in the seventies and eighties and even nineties where they're pretty like, you didn't hear a whole lot about these like holding back and running zone type intervals. And I'm working at a seven out of 10 today. It's like they went to the track and ripped twos and fours one day. And then the next was miles at race pace or something kind of crazy like that. I feel like the trend is probably working more frequently as far as quality in quotes, but also almost slowing it down a hair from what our, our past Mm -hmm. heroes were doing, which is one working systems and two, keeping them available. And I think there's something said about that. Again, that's me just, generalizing what I feel like I've seen. And maybe there's more to that than anything. When we say better training, better training may mean not working as hot all the time, but instead understanding metabolic and physiological principles saying this is actually going to move the needle further and then just embracing that. And that's been a sweep over the last how many years, but that's what I think I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. The big trend across the world is veering away from what workout gives us the biggest return Mm -hmm to what workout causes us the least amount of damage with return. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's how often can we do the workout that allows us to recover fully rather than how hard can we go into a workout to get the most return from it? It's, it's, it's looking at the same, same game and playing by two different sets of rules. Yep. And it would probably be, fascinating to watch some of the workout warriors of yesteryear 
under this system because you know that talent hasn't improved that much over the over the years because running is not one of those human traits that is optimized because we breed to improve it it's not one of those things that over the millennia we will just always become better runners because running's not that important to our society that's not one of the byproducts of like microevolution won't be vo2 max because it's not valued amongst procreation does that make sense yeah uh, to take a tangent though my mind goes to this place once in a while are we getting better because the the pond is bigger I mean, when I was born, what were there, 5 billion people on this planet? Oh, yeah. And now how many people are on this planet? Somebody smarter than me can tell me. But like, we're pulling from... Seven and a half. We're pulling from time like and a half the amount of humans who live on this earth than when I was born back in the 80s. So is it simply <laughs> like we just have more availability and the, the cream that rises to the top, there's just more potential and options for better runners to to be our leaders? Like it... Is it just the numbers? Yeah. Is it is it as much a numbers game as it is carbon-plated shoes? Like, I just wonder about that side of it. Everything's going to rise due to yeah. population growth, I would think. Yeah, it has to be. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, more availability means you find more good runners. You, but it's also like when you when you look across the board and when, like, let's say – men or women are looking to to start a family their number one priority is not mile time or 5k time it's just not one of those mm. traits that drives procreation and so i don't believe that they that running genetic talent is increasing at the same rate that other skills have manifested over the years in human biology and so it's all the other pieces combined and which makes me think the runners of the 40s the 60s the 80s would be every bit as good as many of the runners today if they just trained under the same systems and had the same shoes and the same recovery practices and all of that. Like I'll never believe Jim Ryan's any worse than Alan Webb right. or Jakob Ingebrigtsen. Yeah. I, I don't think the talent level is any different. You don't think we should go back to smoking cigarettes while training so that when we don't smoke those cigarettes during a race, it feels easier? You think that's a good idea? It's poor man's altitude. Poor <laughs> What's more of a poor man's altitude, smoking cigarettes or training in humidity, Bracken? Which would have that effect? I would I would wear an altitude mask with a cigarette hole cut in it. Okay. Now you're, you're set. Double dipping. Um that's all tongue in cheek, folks, by the way. And for those of you who are maybe too young to know, like there's iconic pictures of bikers from the mid nineteen hundreds biking in groups with cigarettes hanging out their mouths. Like this is very it was a common training practice decades and decades ago, but um, don't, don't, please don't go smoke cigarettes to train. I'm not condoning that. I have one more thing for you Yep. about the improvement of running in society. When we started this podcast four years ago, I made a statement that, can you believe indoor nationals for NCAAs? 32 men broke four indoors in the mile, which means that if you broke four in the mile, you didn't make nationals guaranteed. As a college runner, there's a time in our country, in our world, where no one could do that. And then four years ago, when we did a podcast episode, I was blown away that four people who did it didn't qualify for indoor nationals on time. Well, did you see Boston this, this past week? Boston University invite. 30 to 40. Granted, there's some pros there. 43 individuals broke four in the same meet. It's unbelievable, isn't it? 43. Can you imagine back in Bannister's time, the first time someone broke four, if someone had said, 
You know how much of a pioneer you are? Someday, we're going to have 42 more people than did it today do it in one race. <laughs> that, yeah. that would not have been received with any amount of uh, belief. It's crazy where running is right now. Was that in the 50s? Is that when it was broke? Bannister? What was the year? I don't know the exact year. I'm going to look it up while you Okay. Um, I'm just wondering if you know this, like, and maybe you could do a quick search. How many people in the world broke four minutes in the mile, like in 2023? Like, what is our world count up to for sub four minute milers? 1952. 1952. Well, what's the count? Can you look that up? Like, does it have, is there some place that can curate that for us? There was. And then it started getting tougher because people broke so often. I'm just thinking it might be in the... It might be in the thousands every year. Oh, yeah. Which is just incredible to me. I saw Bracken rip around. He ran his last quarter in 60 seconds. And I saw that man ripping. And then he's got to do that three more times and do it relaxed and run just a little faster. And, man, Bracken looked like a like a muscly gazelle out there running. But anyways, perspective. That's a tough, that's a tough pace to hold. <laughs> it is. But I've never seen a gazelle overwhelmed by lactate. <laughs> That would be fun. But have you ever seen a gazelle with biceps? No. Exactly. They don't sure have. I don't think they have biceps. All right. As of June 2022, the four minute barrier has been broken by 1,755 athletes. Total over time. 1,700. Over time. And a thousand of those are probably within a year or two of being active right now. I would have to imagine most of them. Yeah. I would say the vast majority have been in the last decade. Yeah. Wow. What would you consider the four minute mile for women? 420? Like what is the the barrier on the women's side where it becomes that noteworthy? At this point, 430. You still think 430? Probably. For with the frequency that it happens. Yeah. Somewhere around there. 425, 430. Yeah, probably about there. That's true. It's it's disproportionate because there are women that'll run 410. Mm-hmm. So a 20 second difference. No one's running 440 for the mile. But they're running 440. Three. So not far off. Uh, how about this? 426 plus or minus four seconds. Boom. All right. Now, anything else in the racing world? Um, as we said, if you hadn't listened to the, the episode with Hans Troyer, we interviewed him about a month ago. Uh, he did a four-week turnaround and tried to complete another 100K Ultra. He ended up 10th. Uh, I know some of you were invested in how Hans did in Black Canyon. He held strong up at the front in like third place sniffing the leaders. And I think he, you know, he crumbled maybe the last quarter, but still held on respectably. He put himself in contention and running back to back hundred Ks four weeks apart when you're 22 years old. I have to imagine that that rent comes due in the final 15 miles of that race, no matter how good you are. And I'm guessing that happens. So like, dude is going to be scary. I would think if he raced back black Canyon for his first ultra fresh, I would think he would actually place better. I think it was to his detriment. But anyways, it was good to follow along those results. Oh, yeah. Rachel Drake won for the women. And Hans, I I had a conversation with an athlete, I think the day before you and I got together. And they were talking about how they're going to approach their next uh, big competition. I said in championship races or qualifier events, which this was, they had golden ticket, which is your, your free entry into Western States. You can run to win or you can run to do your best. And you can do your best while winning, but if you go for the win and miss, you won't run your best. Mm -hmm. There are two camps of people who will enter these big races. And Hans went there to win. 
Hans ran with Hayden Hawks, who is a world-level runner, who won the race and broke the course record. It looked like Hans was with him through at least 24 miles. Yep. So to say that I went out with the leader for a marathon kind of puts into perspective the type of uh, inserting himself into the race that he did. And and, and so in those situations, I, I never care about the time gap by the end. Like once you break from the leader, yep. once you start to crack, whatever happens is immaterial at that point. Like it, you're bleeding out. You, it, it means nothing. But the fact that he still finished within 30 minutes of the course record in a 62-mile race is like being on... I don't know, the home stretch as the leader crosses the finish line in a 5K. Mm-hmm. It, you're not that, like, you got beat handily, but you're not that far off in reality. Yeah. They were just closing and you were fading. And then on the opposite side of the coin, you say you race to race your best or you race to win. And if you race to win and don't, it goes south very quickly. The opposite end, Rachel Drake won for the women, and she's very accomplished, um, U.S. based, but worldly competitive. Um, and she uh she went out and she was running fifth and she was you know ten plus minutes behind and then she's running third and then she ends up coming around and winning by five minutes, which is very tight in a sixty two mile mm-hmm. race. And she went to run her best race and she happened to win by doing that. I don't know if she went out to run to win because she would have stayed attached. So it's like interesting to know what will yield the best result depending on the day, the human, the conditions, yeah. all of that. Um, all right, let's teach some people some things today. You know, what are we going to teach them about? Okay. Doping. Doping. That's right. Doping. You're going to be the best dopers ever after this. We're going to teach you about doping. Um, so, so Bracken and I are out to dinner this weekend. I don't know. Bracken got a burger. I got some chicken tenders, some cheese. We were eating junk food is what was happening. And I start picking your brain about doping. You said something. Mocatier just got popped for unavail- being unavailable or failure to comply, I believe. Uh, what was the exact accusation? Failure to... Uh, three whereabouts failures in one year. Sure. Meaning that when drug testers showed up at the place where he specified he would be, he was nowhere to be found on three different occasions. So skirting the P test. He was avoiding getting tested, which after three of those, you're gone. Um. Anyway, somehow this came up. And we've had this conversation a few times in the past. And I started picking your brain. I was like... Because Bracken, you tend to be pro doping. Meaning, <laughs> this is a if someone pulls you think there's that more quote. of it going. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they have the doping games coming up too. Like the uh, like, hey, anything goes. Like, hey, you want to go run the marathon yep. on dope? Like, great, we're gonna allow it. We just you, the enhanced the enhanced games. games, which I'm gonna tune in for. Not gonna lie, I'm gonna have to. Anyways, it's gonna be like NAIA college nationals. There's going to be like 14 people there. Maybe. Who's going to be there? Do you have to be doping to go to those games? Is it like, okay, we got to test you and you got to pop for something? Or can I just show up as like Kirk? Like, not, I'm just going to the enhanced games even though I'm not enhanced. Is that, do you know the rules? The way I look at it is like bodybuilding versus natty bodybuilding competitions. You don't have to dope to be in the regular bodybuilding. It's just not illegal. Hmm. So it's not illegal to be clean. And just like that, the natty bodybuilding competitions are incredibly dirty just like the regular olympics all right so let's get down to it so then we just we chatted about doping for what a half an hour maybe yeah probably and i was like man i have more faith in humanity than you do brack and i just don't think so and then you're like well i don't i think that there's more of this going on and you use an, <laughs> yeah and you use an example of and i don't know if this can be talked about so i won't use a name but a mutual friend of ours going to the doctor 
who didn't think doping was really that, like, I wouldn't even know where to start or whatever. And this person went to the doctor, their testosterone wasn't even that low. I mean, it was within the normal range for a male and were immediately offered TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, without needing it, clinically not needing it. And this person, this mutual friend of ours is an athlete as well, which would probably objectively enhance this person's performance. And somehow this all came up, right? And it's like, if it's that easy to get for a normal person. Yeah. So I just want to get your your thoughts. We'll chat it out a little bit. I just want to hear what you have to say again, because it was it was a fascinating conversation for me. Well, I guess to start with, just the the availability issue is usually everyone's sticking point. There's There's generally two arguments. It's just not worth it. Why would they risk it? And I wouldn't even know where to begin. And I think I've had four or five close friends of mine who their doctor has attempted to put them on some sort of unintentional doping regimen to balance out testosterone or things like that. I had one who his son was, the doctor said, below norms for growth and development at 13 and prescribed him human growth hormone. One of the most powerful doping agents known to man just because his puberty hasn't hit yet. Yeah. It's just, it's, and these are people who aren't looking for it and they didn't take it. As far as I know, they all were like, no, like I, I don't want this. And the doctors are always perplexed. Why wouldn't you? And the doctors reply always the same thing. Like everyone in your demographic is your peers, a, a word I can't stand, but your cohort, they, this is what happens. They come in here, we tell them this and they go on it and their quality of life improves. And so I just don't, from that, from a medical standpoint, it's not difficult to find. From a bro standpoint, you walk into any gym on the planet and there are going to be people in the locker room or out on the platforms talking openly about it. It just occurs so frequently in certain circles and the circles all overlap somewhere in everyone's life to the point where uh, availability is never the the sticking point. Well, and maybe for some people listening who might have a misconception about illegal drug use, performance enhancing drug use, it's illegal by rules and governing bodies, but like you can't go to jail for using steroids, for example. Like you're not like breaking a law by doing these. Like some of these people at the gym that only for buying or trafficking. For using you cannot. So like Correct. Somebody at your gym who doesn't pass the eye test, you're like, gee, like, there's no way that guy, like, of course he works, but like, there's just no way his biceps are bigger than my head. And like, the guy isn't breaking any laws by doing that or woman, right? So like, it's not inherently illegal. It's illegal because it provides a benefit for nope, you to, not to your all. competitors. So what I'm getting at is the reason it is somewhat available is because for a lot of people... Like they're technically not doing anything wrong. So like it's available because it's not like an under the table street drug. It is, but it isn't. It's just like a doctor could prescribe it. you like a doctor's not prescribing you mm -hmm. meth or cocaine or anything like that. But like you can go to a doctor and then give you testosterone replacement. Like that's a real thing that could enhance your performance. So anyway, just to clear the air, because I think some people like probably like me years ago, like did didn't even know the difference, right? Like, oh, they're bad. They do steroids. Like, well, they're mm -hmm. not bad. It's just they're choosing to live with whatever consequences follow their actions later in life, and that's a personal choice. But anyways, I just thought that was important to say as a preface. Mm -hmm. So I want to direct you. And many of them are good for you, objectively. 
like your quality of life would improve, which is why doctors prescribe it. And so that's, that crosses borders too. Uh, the other argument other than why they don't have anything to risk, why would they, or it's too big of a risk. The, 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 the question is like, where, when did they all start? It's like, well, before they found sport, most of them, right. They're bro lifting with their friends or their doctor had it on it because they had low T and now they started sport and they're great at it. And why would they stop? Because when you stop, you have a reduction in quality of life. Right. Now it actually is medically necessary to keep your level of life quality going. Well, right. If you're, and we're not just talking testosterone here, we're talking EPO and all the other stuff as well. And I don't know, we're just talking about mm -hmm. those anabolic agents right now, I guess, leading off, but like, um, where was I going with this? Oh, you know, I, and I can tell you how effective this is. And I think I talked to you about this when we were out to dinner was when I was real sick back in college and I was not feeling well and losing weight. And, you know, I got my testosterone levels tested and they were at 37 as a 21 year old male. Testosterone levels for a 21 year old male should be, um, you know, Seven to, Seven to 1100. I was at 37. Uh, the doctor looked okay. at me and said, um, females have the same amount of testosterone in their body as you do. That's was what was told to me. That's to help you understand how low it is. When a woman gets tested, her testosterone levels very well could be 37. Put that into perspective. I want to say the limit is around a hundred for women in sport in sport. Okay. So they put me on androgel testosterone replacing therapy. It was a clear odorless gel that looked like hand sanitizer, but smelled like nothing. And I rubbed it on my shoulders, chest, or stomach. That was the instruction. Empty one packet into my hand, rub it on twice a day. And I went from 37 to 1300 in three months, gained 15 pounds. I wasn't even lifting weights. I was doing life stuff. My appetite was insatiable. I was waking up at 3 a.m., running to the, the, gas station to get a dozen donuts because I was so hungry I couldn't sleep and I was fiending for just density. And I did that day in and day out repeatedly. It took me over. In fact, I think it, we overswung a little bit there. I didn't take it anymore after that. I went, didn't like how I felt on it, didn't seem to help my underlying health conditions. The At the time, the low T was probably as a result of other things. That wasn't my problem, right? That was just an effect of what else I had going on. So point being, 37 to 1300 I gained 15 pounds without touching a weight. Um, kind of turned me into a crazy hormonal dude, to be honest. And sex drive was like something you couldn't even understand at that point compared to going from 37 to whatever. And my my numbers did normalize. And now as a male, I'm on the lower side of normal, but I'm normal and I'm healthy and I'm okay. But point being, I experienced it firsthand what that could do. I put myself into like a position of like a power lifter or just a guy who wants to look good or anybody. Oh my God, if you put weights in my hand and then I have this underlying metabolic inducer to cause me to be like, want to move and be hungry and feel full of bravado. My God, could I have run through walls? And we have versions of that for even endurance running EPO, mm -hmm. right? Blood doping, so to speak. So I've, I've, I felt how powerful it is and how easy it was given to me. Granted, my situation was more dire, let's say than others, but as my own personal experience with it. And no, I haven't taken it since 2005 folks. So I think I'm clean. Get off my back. 19 years is not long enough. Ban this man. <laughs> I'm innocent. Ban him. You know what's interesting about this, and I won't say I sold it, but to to talk about it real quick. Um, I worked at Bally Total Fitness at the time as a personal trainer, 
and it came up in conversation that I was on the stuff and I was gaining weight and the number of people that came up to me asking if I could keep my prescription going and they would buy it for me for two, three, four hundred dollars a mm -hmm. month was unbelievable. Normal guys, like a guy that's in his mid twenties with nothing to gain or lose. It. But anyways, continue. No, that's it. Just that those stories are a dime a dozen. It's everywhere. And uh, so you, you said that you you got the impression that I want everyone to be doping because it justifies my like pitchfork mentality about this. And the fact is, I don't because if I assume everyone is, I lose faith in everyone. And if the top is doping, then there's no hope for the the sub elite. Mm -hmm. And I more than anything am a dreamer, which I think is is easy to see. <laughs> Like I am, I'm very much a dreamer and I like, I, I love the underdog story. And if the best are also the dirtiest underdogs get written out of the narrative. And so nothing would make me happier to find out I was wrong about most of these things. But whenever an athlete comes clean and talks about it, you quickly see how the tendrils are everywhere in sport. And the more high level coaches get caught and get banned or get kind of like, it's more of the shadow bands you hear about. Um, they, the, the, you, the sub elites get caught and they make a huge story about and the highest, highest end just kind of slip away. And the more they come clean years later, the more you realize it's just, it's what is the requirement to be a world record holder in this day and age. It's what's the requirement to be on a national team in certain countries. Like there's no say in the matter. It's, it's driven by your governing body or in some cases your government. And so it's, I don't think I'm pessimistic. I think I'm not naive. What was fascinating to me in our conversation is you were outlining like the, I don't know if it was the Germans or the Spain protocol, like just explain like some of the stuff that you at least hear say about maybe even how like government involvement or people go to training camps, like some of the examples you gave me, I was like, yeah, it's kind of a bummer. But if you start reading between the lines is there's not much like coincidence doesn't exist. Right. And then coincidentally, if Right. These people are at this place at this time or not like there's too much coincidence across the board where it points to guilt, but people aren't maybe testing positive. What, explain some of that. You sent me, you gave me a couple examples. Yeah. We have examples of high level athletes with disposable incomes and massive sponsorships and funding that continually choose to hold their training camps in nonsensical locations. Where like just over the border is a better location and it's their home country. Like why would you cross the border here to go to a, an arguably worse training locale? Like why is this becoming popular? And then one by one, those training sites get popped. Like uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher his name, Jama Aiden. He was a coach and agent to a huge stable of world-class and world-record holding athletes. Had a training camp just over the border by Spain, and there were better spots around there, but all these top-end athletes kept showing up there. Like people go to, to E10 to train, but people were leaving E10 to go there and train. I could, I, it, it didn't make sense why you would leave the place that people already go to to get elevation and hundreds of pro runners to run with. And then one day, the police, local police raided and found like 59 syringes of EPO and all these used syringes and the duffel bags full of cash and drug paraphernalia. And there were something like 13 pro 
uh, medalist at world champs or Olympics in the hotel at the time. And suddenly like they scattered. <laughs> it was like the lights came on and the roaches scattered and he was left there holding it all. He got like three years or something because doping is illegal in Spain. Um, but the Spanish Federation also has like a protection racket going on. It's like this, it's this weird thing, but he was charged, but nothing ever came of it. None of his athletes ever, like they were all at training camp. He had 50 some used syringes in the rooms where they had, st- and no- nothing ever came of it. But like Mo Farah had always gone there, even though this guy didn't coach him. And uh, the, um, what are their names? The Dababa sisters all went there and he was their agent and then they all dropped off the map right after this so like these kind of things keep happening all these training camps and locations where there's no reason to go there suddenly you find out oh that place got busted like you you were going there to avoid suspicion those things are disheartening to see yeah and I, i believe you gave me a couple other examples but my sticking point with the conversation and I say jokingly, like I have more faith in humanity. Like they mm-hmm. went, people wouldn't do that. Mo Katir was just busy those three days. <laughs> He's got great reasons to not show up for those drug testing days. Uh, yeah, that's a little. You know, we're starting to ride a line that's ridiculous there. But, um, but let's actually pause there for one second. Okay, can we pause okay. there? Because he put out a statement. I missed three tests. I didn't miss three tests. I was somewhere. And they thought I was somewhere else. And they showed up, and I wasn't there. I don't consider that a, a miss. I didn't do anything wrong. And he said, I just consider this bad communication on their end and that kind of thing. Well, the reality, these excuses always sound good, but the reality is you, when you leave as a pro athlete and they all have agents and coaches who are in charge of staying on top of this, when you're in the testing pool, you have to inform when you're not going to be the places you say you are. And if you miss one, a miss is considered, they show up. And there's a time window where they ring your doorbell and they call you and they call all the numbers that you list as your backup numbers for who can get a hold of you if you're not where like they have a system to try to avoid giving you a whereabouts failure. And I don't know if it's 30 minutes or an hour or whatever it is. In that time, no one answers any of the numbers that you give as your emergency contacts for WADA to contact me. And then they give you a formal written warning and evidence of a missed test you have one whereabouts failures two more and you face a minimum it's a four-year ban but it can be reduced down to two years or 12 months if they believe your excuse you receive that in writing your agent receives that in writing your coach does you have to do that two more times to be sanctioned after your second one you are informed if this happens again you're going to be out of the sport for four years at that point can you imagine the negligence that would lead to a third version of this and that's a 12 month window in one year it's not like seven years ago i had one and i forgot like just that one little excuse he had it's so flimsy someone came up and said you're going to lose your job if you forget to do this thing once again and you do it again that same month yeah you don't deserve your job anyway let's move on but i do want to clarify how these situations are way more cut and dry than these athletes make it seem Uh, i'm glad you outlined that it's easy to have one whereabouts failure. Really easy to have one. Yeah. You have normal life. You head to the store. They show up at your house and they start blowing up your phone and you can't get back in time. That's one. Right. After that, you never make that mistake again. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that no clarifying that is is very helpful. Uh, m- my sticking point is, you know, truth be told, I can understand why the fleet of African runners 
who live in low-income villages or houses or impoverished families. Uh, and don't get me wrong. Some of the Kenyans come from money and some of the Africans come from money. A lot don't, right? That just is what it is. I can mm-hmm. see why somebody trying to break through, he has nothing to lose and everything to gain, he or she. Let's take some EPO. Let's see how good I can get. I'm not going to get tested right now anyways. This is my way, and I have everything to gain and nothing to lose. So that second and third tier, I can actually understand them somehow justifying it and not even batting an eyelash. I could say I can understand a Spartan or High Rocks age group athlete. I get it. You have everything to gain and nothing to lose. You want to look and feel good and you want to perform better? Like, what's the what's the risk? Nothing other than potential aftermath side effects and some financial cost to ob- ob- obtaining these substances. I get it. It's like those second and third tier who are most likely not even on the radar, sure, I think it's infused there because there's no risk involved. And people want to get better and people want to get out of their current life and break through. Where we struggle, I think, is not struggle, but like where we didn't, we, I wouldn't say butt heads because I didn't, I don't have a strong opinion on this, but it was like, what does Jakob Ingerbritsen have to gain? Like he has everything to lose and nothing to gain. What is the Josh Kerr, the best in Yared Nagus or even Moketeer, right? Like mm-hmm. what on earth do you have to gain and you have everything to lose by doing this at this point? So where does it line up with the, the cream of the crop, the superstars of our sport? Is there advanced like what do you how do you address that? I don't know if it's a convincing argument for you, but I believe it's the exact opposite. Like what they have to gain is tenfold of what they could lose. Because up until the moment you get caught, you're making millions of dollars. You're living in your mansion, you have the spouse of your dreams, you have the cars, you have the fame, you have the following, you have the sponsorships, you have the glory. And we can never overlook the the power of glory. People will do anything for glory. But when they started, I'm not saying any of those guys are, but when they started, they didn't necessarily have those things yet. If you were winning everything and making $10 million a year, why would you? But if you could make $10 million a year and win everything by pushing the, the the envelope a little bit. That's the way I look. And what happens if you get caught? Like who has got caught in our sport that you think about on a daily basis? Really only Lance Armstrong, right? See the only one that anyone really thinks of when you think who has he been caught doping? Maybe some of the sprinters from the US, the women's era, um, a couple, but- And you know what they all are still? Yeah millionaires do you know if there's a system in place let's say let's say Jakob gets popped for very obvious like dudes on epo mm-hmm. i'm not saying he is guys by the way uh is there any retraction of money like hey now you owe us your signing bonuses back and your race winnings and all of this do you know if there's a system or is that just a case-by-case basis it's case-by-case and it's country by country uh, certain countries like Spain, where it's illegal to even have it on your person, you can be pursued in a criminal court for that. So races, agents, anyone can do that. Agents never will because they profited off you. And generally, your agent is your big man. So they're not going to do that. Coaches aren't going to do that because they profit off you and most of the time are aware of it. Not always. Many of them are in the dark. So it's up to race organizers and uh, people who have been wronged by you to do that. 
So races, for example, if you get popped doping at Boston, Boston can pursue you for previous year's prize money. But it's really, really difficult to prove when you started. Yeah, I know stuff about that. So yeah, people can come after you and they have in the past, but it's generally a long drawn out process. And it's really difficult to prove. Yeah, and what's tough about those situations then is let's say they ask for prize money back, but typically you're not going to see that um, cascade down to second place or third place. That money then second place doesn't get their rightful victory, nor the the earnings. It just goes back into the mm-hmm. ether. But um, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it all. It's not like it's not like you had a a conversation with like Lance Armstrong's. Car, coach Carmichael at one point and was like, yeah, so everybody's doping, man. Like, I'm just telling you, like, it's not like you've had one of those conversations with anybody in sport or anything. You just start to add up the pieces and say, yeah, like we're naive to think that a number of the superstars are not at this point with what you've read and consumed over the years. Is that what it comes down to? That's a piece of it. I've also had those conversations. Like I, we had a guest and I, uh, I had a conversation, a guest of ours came on here and gave a great interview, but it's also a friend of mine outside this in life. And he ran at a D one school and had firsthand knowledge of guys on his team doping. Mm. This is a university that is about as well respected as any running program is. And this was 10 to 12 years ago. Then I have, uh, I'm going to say three men in the sport of OCR or hybrid who have admitted to me (laughs) in strict privacy that in the past they have used. Of course, no one's saying I am now. Yeah. And I'm going to take them at their word, but I have, I did, and guess who else still is? Now, I can't trust them on the guess who else still is, but they've admitted themselves. It gives some credence to the people they say who still are. That's just in our little sport, in our circle. Buddy of mine in college, had a real issue. He was a wide receiver for Whitewater's football team. Had a real issue coming off doping because his confidence and body image issues just really went opposite directions. And he openly talked about all the people there. And so you start to get these glimpses and uh, buddies of mine. When I first did High Rocks, a guy I went to high school with who now is a really deeply invested in the powerlifting community offered to help me build up my power. I could come to his gym. It's one of those, it's an invite only gym. It's people who are serious about their craft. And he said, and you just let me know. He said, I'm sure it's illegal, but the type of power you want, like gears the way to get there. You let me know when that, when that conversation arises, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's these kind of things that you have enough of these interactions and then you trace their spider web and see, Oh, who, who do we have who are mutual friends? And you start realizing all these little pockets all around it's happening. And the most compelling thing I ever heard was someone gave a talk on it. Uh, and they basically just said, if it's an activity undertaken by humans, there will be cheating. I don't care if it's a monopoly in your basement, uh, filling out your taxes, marriage, course cutting, doping. If humans do it, they don't need a real big justification for why. To save 400 bucks on your taxes, you're going to cheat. To give a moment's gratification in a marriage, you're going to cheat. Not everyone. Like we don't need a logic to make us make these decisions. And so I have less faith in that side of humanity than you do. And we're both very positive, optimistic people, I would say in general as well, right? Like we have good faith in good humans. So um, I still don't think they are. Um, And maybe that's just me with my rose tinted glasses on. I just can't, that top end of the sport, the ones that get shoved down our throat on social media, like we don't have insight to that world. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like a 
like a mid or major level D one program. Uh, I could see, I, I, I can understand the less you're under the spotlight because to me, it feels less risky. I understand your argument for why it would be justified at the top as well. Um, mm-hmm. I have one counter left. Okay. Well, I'm not, I, did I make an argument? I don't, I don't think I did. No, like for people, just, just to get thinking about how prevalent it is. Okay. And this is a logic question that follows two points you've made. First about the risk, second about like population size and availability. So it's become very, very uh, well known that the Russian government and their their version of the FBI and CIA actively participated in aiding and abetting doping during the Olympics for their athletes. Like espionage level James Bond stuff to pull off the doping for their athletes. They are a nation with... They have a population that is exceedingly high. And, and so in terms of athletes they can choose from, they have as big of a a pool mm-hmm. as anyone in history really has. And they have state-sponsored programs where they funnel people of prominence or any any predilection towards athletes into athletics that suit their skill set, and they dope them. So if we have one of the biggest populations on earth, pulling at the highest percentage of sourcing their talented athletes and mandating that they partake in medical procedures in order to maximize it. And they haven't set every record and they don't win even like close to the highest number of medals. And they don't have world-class athletes across the board in every sport. What is going on everywhere else? I know there's, it's like that whataboutism, but if we said we have more athletes available, and that's why we're better. And that if you dope, you get better. They have all that, and their government starting it early, and they're not a dominant powerhouse. So how do people beat them? Good old fashioned hard work, Bracken. Where do we get our lifting protocol from? <laughs> where do we get our hard work from? Like where does every lifting program come from? Nem, Eastern Europeans. It stems from Russia, right? Yeah. Yeah, they have the, they have the leading sports psychologists and scientists in the world. They know how to train. They have more athletes, and they know how to dope. And they're still not the most dominant. Yeah, um, there's no point to this conversation, folks, other than Bracken and I. Yeah, I mostly listened, um, but we had the conversation out to dinner, and I was like, you know, we're going to get down to some very uh, specific training Tuesdays moving forward. We're going to get back to some um, fundamentals of teaching you some things. This is a nice transition episode for us. And I just thought what takeaways from the weekend were good. And that conversation just is like, there's no point to it other than like, it's a conversation. Somebody got popped this last week, Moketeer. It's chat worthy, right? And will we ever know? I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know the advancements in testing. I don't know the investment in, uh, advancements in hiding positive test results. I don't know the system in which you look at the NFL and I don't really know how it works, but it's like, hey, you're going to be tested on the opening day of training camp. Heads up. Okay, great. I'll cycle all the way until two weeks prior, make sure my numbers normalize, go off for the testing Mm -hmm. so I don't get popped. Like we as nations and people want to see spectacles. And a lot of that does infuse, I think, into the back end of sport, especially major level sports. I think that uh, not that it's condoned, but it's certainly made much easier to do so based on like testing dates and your requirements and 
There's not a lot of people knocking on people's doors at midnight in a random day in the NFL, for example. Like, hey, you show up, you get tested. Let's move on with our days. I believe that's how it works. So, like, there is a lot of that that I trust is going on. I don't know how that works in elite level distance running because it's so many countries and so many different protocols. And I know WADA is universal, but what, like, how's that work? I just have so many questions that I can't. You get what I'm saying? I just don't. I'll know. answer that one really briefly. Okay. There's a testing window. I think it's 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., which is why microdosing was invented so that your glow time was less than 12 hours. Yeah. So at 9.02, you inject, and at 4 a.m., it's out of your system, that kind of thing. Anyway, but the whole takeaway of all this, like what, what, what do people do with this? Nothing. It's almost nothing. I still love running. It's almost like permission for me not to care. Mm. I truly believe at the top, it's mandated in most countries. And so- I can just watch everything and believe it's probably a, a level of playing field. And I can celebrate the people who look like underdogs and, and I like to believe aren't doping. And it's even more impressive to me what they're doing. Because if all the best in the world are cheating, they're cheating equally. And now it's still whoever trains the hardest, is the grittiest, executes the best, is the most phenomenal. I can still cheer for them. Yeah. Especially if it's not even their fault. Like your government does it. Am I going to say no to the CIA? Yeah. And if you're not one of those athletes, then it's just even more spectacular with what you're doing. So it actually doesn't dull my enthusiasm for the sport. I just think we shouldn't have the wool in front of our eyes. You know what I do? I sit here and I close my eyes <laughs> and I, I visualize and I visualize Woody K Kincaid <laughs> taking a needle and sticking it into his thigh and say, I cannot even imagine that happening. I sit here and close my eyes and I think of Connor Mance going into a bathroom closet and taking all the bad stuff, right? And I think, I can't fathom that happening. There's no way that is happening. All these guys are clean because I can't visualize that actually because I want to believe in these the goodness of these people. And just you guys picture Woody Kincaid doping up. You can't do it either. No, none of them are doing it. That's what I say. <laughs> That's my very subjective take. And that's why I won't ever say specific athlete names because you never know. I know. So I choose to believe everyone is, and then it means no one's no one's at fault. It's not everyone, and I know that. In fact, there was just a post made. Uh, someone posted ORM or something about drug testing or whatever, and someone posted, everyone's lying. All you're lying. We all know all OCR, High Rocks, DECA athletes are doing it. You just don't want to admit it. Mm. And I got mad at that. It's like, of course not. I've done one. Yeah, right. So it's not everyone. Yeah. But I'm sitting here saying the same thing. Like, They are, they aren't. Who cares? It's just don't say names until you know for sure. All right. Well, I don't know what we did today, but scramble your brains. <laughs> Hopefully that's what you needed whether we're accompanying you on your run or your drive into or out of work. Um, I think we need to wrap this thing up. We went longer than expected. So uh, Bracken, I miss you already. Yes. I miss you dearly. I look forward to the next retreat right now. Yeah. And we'll be launching our ideas here moving forward as they come up. We'll just leave it at that. But thanks for listening, folks. We really appreciate you. If anything resonated with you on today's episode and you're curious about taking your training to the next level, check out therunningpublic.com where we have a training plan to fit your needs. Thank you.